Jesus. I'm glad we have a church that's alive, that loves people, loves Jesus, and loves others. Amen. I, uh, we had lunch with someone that doesn't attend our church. Actually, they've been, they, they've been once or twice, and they said this week, they said, your church is just like family. We've, you know, we don't attend there. We don't go there, but we've been there, and, uh, but we feel like family every time we're there. And then they were telling us about how George photobombed them, and so anyway. <laughs> we're like, oh, yeah, that's George. He's a great guy. <laughs> Amen. Well, you can be seated this morning. Grab your Bibles, your notepads. We're starting a new series this morning called Wholeness. And uh, I, I'm so excited to start this series with you. And uh, I want to encourage you to take notes. My, uh, my message notes will be posted in Realm and on our website and such for you. But, uh, but don't, don't not take notes because of that. Take notes because the Lord's going to speak to you as you do that. And, uh, of course, always bring your Bibles. Let me see your Bibles. How many of you got your Bibles? Haven't done this in a while. Let me see your Bibles. The lights are bright. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Love seeing all those Bibles. You know, I grew up, uh, and, and I'm sure many of you can relate to this. I grew up in, uh, in a time where uh, basically anytime you would talk about emotions, things like Oh, those are of the devil, we're kind of said, or we ignore those. We, we live by faith, and we don't talk about emotions. <laughs> or uh, anything that dealt with your you know, emotional, mental well-being, you know, we don't talk about that. Matter of fact, counseling or anything associated with counseling or mental health growing up was more very taboo. We don't talk about those things. And, um, you know, so, so I grew up with that. Anybody else uh, have that same or similar experience where you just don't talk about those things? Well, Jesus talked about those things, and the Bible talks about those things. God the Father talked about those things. So I think we should talk about these things. So, uh, so I want to talk about this wholeness series. It's not just about emotions, but it's about discovering your wholeness in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Now, I, I was always taught, well, you know, this verse was related to, you, you, we don't talk about those things because they're gone, they're done away with. And it never made sense to me, how could they be done away with? But you have Christians, people who call themselves Christians, who are lying and, and, and gossiping and emotional wrecks and can't get their households in order. It just didn't make any sense to me. If the old was gone, man, I sure don't like the new. <laughs> Any of you ever been there? You thought, well, Lord, I thought that things were all new and you were making things new in my life. This sure doesn't seem like the new. This seems like the old. Well, what this passage of Scripture, what Paul's writing here, is that the old order of things, how we deal with life, the old way of doing things is gone. And there's a new order. There's a new authority um, and that, that word, as you go into the old, it's about the authority structures in our life. So the old way of doing things is gone. He's brought a regenerated, refreshed, new way of living. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that the old order doesn't exist out there and that our carnal nature, we have to deal with that. It means how we dealt with things in life 
before Christ has been done away with. You can't just uh, curse someone out because they make you mad. You can't run someone off the road because they cut you off, right? You can't give someone a piece of your mind because you get frustrated with them, right? So there's a new way of living, a new order, and a new authority structure in our life. And so when Paul writes this, the old has passed away. How we deal with things has passed away. The old order, the new has come. The new order, the way of living in Christ has come. He echoes this in Hebrews that we have a new and a living way, a new way of living. He says, therefore, brothers, in Hebrews 10, 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and what new and living way. So we don't operate according to the old way, the old order, the old way of doing things is gone. He's opened up for us through the curtain that is through the flesh. We have he is his body was torn. The curtain of his flesh was torn. He was crucified, buried and resurrected so that you and I could live a new way of life. So redemption, salvation, the, the plan of redemption saves us from hell, saves us from eternal damnation, but it also opens up a new way of living, that we don't continue on in the old styles and pathways and the, the old tapes and the old uh, torments of our old life. Those things can be done away with, and you have a new way of living. Tell somebody next to you have a new way of living. I think that's so powerful that you don't have to, you know, if you're feeling tormented this morning, maybe something in life is bothering you. Maybe there's something emotionally that's upsetting you or just, just got you distracted in life or something's going on. We all face those hardships and challenges. But I've got good news for you is that God's plan for your life is that you can live a new way. You can live a higher way. You don't have to continue on in that path. Maybe it's depression or anxiety. There's a new order that comes living in Christ. It doesn't mean that it's immediate, doesn't mean that it changes overnight, but there's a new authority structure in your life. You know, here's the, the great thing about authority structures is, is when, we, when we receive that authority structure, it's in a moment, it's instantaneous. We receive the, the, the new king in our life. But it takes years for our, the rest of our lives to align, to come into alignment with that new authority structure. You've been living under the lies of the, the Jesus called him the, your father, the devil. <laughs> You've been living according to the lies of the father, your devil. You've come into a new adopted family. You've been brought in to the family of God. There's a new authority structure, a new way of living. And it takes sometimes a lifetime for those authority structures to align in our lives. Some things are more instantaneous than others. Some things take weeks or months and other Things take a lifetime, but it's an authority structure that changes how we live. We're complete in Christ. You, did you know that God wants you to prosper? Did you know that? I, I love, I, what did I do with my phone? Did I bring my phone up here? There's a 1 John 3, 2. I don't know what I did with my phone. I had it a moment ago. It was right here. Oh, here it is. It's right here in front of me. 
<laughs> Have you ever had those moments? <laughs> Sitting right here in front of me, right on the pulpit. <laughs> I look. I looked up this verse. The reason why I was even looking for it is because I had looked up this verse earlier in the Passion Translation, and I wanted to read it to you. It's from 3 John 1, 2. And it deals with this idea that God wants you to prosper. 3 John 1, 2, it says, Beloved, I pray that you are prospering in every way. So every way, right? So this word prospering, he goes on, he says, and that you continually enjoy good health just as your soul is prospering. But what's, I love this because the word that uh, is used here for prospering is the Greek word eudomai. And it means to be brought along to a smooth and prosperous journey or to continually be prosperous unto success in every way. That's the life that God's called you to live. Every area, emotionally, spiritually, physically, every area prospering in God. Now, the, what's interesting about this, it's the same. So the, the Greek word, eudomai, is the counterpart to the Hebrew word um, or the Aramaic word used in Joshua 1.8 when he says, be strong and courageous and don't let the word of God depart out of your mouth so that you may prosper. And all that you do. So even, you know, we just talked about this past couple of weeks about possessing your promise. Taking hold of the promise of God for your life. Well, we're, we're diving into a, another layer of taking possession of God's promises for your life. That you may prosper. So the purpose of this message series on wholeness is that I want you to prosper in all that God has for you. All that God has for you, that you will prosper in every way, that you may have success in every way. So there's, we're made complete in Christ. We have a new and living way in Christ. Colossians 3, 10 and 11 in the Passion Translation, I love this, says, you have acquired new creation life. Did you hear that? For you have acquired new creation life, which is continually, everybody say continually, continually being renewed into the likeness of the one who created you, giving you the full revelation of God. In this new creation life, your nationality makes no difference, nor your ethnicity, education, nor economic status. They matter nothing, for it is Christ that means everything as he lives in every one of us. Amen. So he's creating in you and I a completeness, a fullness that we can enjoy. Amen. We're continually being renewed. We're continually being made new in Christ. In Colossians 2, 9 and 10, if you just skip back a chapter in Colossians, it says we have complete fullness for he is the complete fullness of deity living in human form. And our own completeness is now found in him. Did you catch that? He is the complete fullness of deity living in human form. Who is that? Jesus. 
We see the completeness of God in Jesus Christ, in, in human form, the Son of God in the Son of Man. We see Him, the fullness of God, and our completeness. So He was made complete in humanity so that you and I can be made complete in humanity. So we find our completeness in Him. We are completely filled with God as Christ, His fullness, overflows within us. I love that. That word fullness is the, the copiousness of God. We have the copiousness of God flowing into us. We have the abundance of God. It is absolutely crammed in, filled in, made complete, fully satisfied. If you could take a bowl, shake it up, put more in, Shake it up, put more in, shake it up, put more. That's what's happening to you and I, is that Christ keeps shaking us up, putting more in. Have you ever felt like, Lord, I feel like I'm in the test every other week. What are you doing? He's shaking you up so he can put more of you in. Lord, I feel like things are being refined in my life. He's shaking you up so he can put more of himself in. Lord, why am I facing this situation? He's shaking you up so he can put more in. He's just shifting things in your life so you can keep on being filled with Him. Your completeness comes in Him. So as we talk about, as we embark on this journey, I, I want to cover today ten signs that you might not be complete in Christ. So we, so we want to so be complete in Christ. I want to find my fullness in Christ. But there are signs and indicators for our lives that maybe there might be some emotional unhealth or spiritual unhealth in our life. And so I, I'm going to take us on a journey over the next few weeks on, on healing and wholeness in Christ, being complete in Christ. I'm, I'm looking forward to you joining the journey. But part of this is that we have to recognize where maybe we're falling short or maybe some indicator. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I'm pretty good, Pastor. I think I'm okay. I, I, don't, I don't really need any healing. I'm doing real good. Well, maybe you'll identify with one of these things this morning. Are you ready? Okay, let's take it number one. Using God to run from God. You know, in ministry... Ministry has a tendency to keep us busy. You know, I can speak from a, from a minister's life, ministry perspective, and, and I'm sure you can relate to this, where you find yourself just always on the run because there's always a need. There's always something to do. There's always something to take care of. There's a, there's a funeral to have. There's a funeral meal to fix. There's a, there's a, a crisis moment. You've got to be at the hospital. There's an event going on at the church. There's another service happening at the church. There's another meeting to have. There's another discipleship conversation to have. There's another small group to have. And if you're not careful, the, the ministry business, or in your case, maybe you're not in full-time ministry, maybe the spiritual activity, the spiritual business overtakes the one who actually called you in the first place. And we begin to use God and use God terms in order to run from God. On the surface, all appears to be healthy and working well, but it's not. This symptom hides behind hours and hours spent doing endless Christian activity. One book after another, one service after another. Endless responsibilities, all for the sake of God. 
Such activities become detrimental when we use them in an unconscious way to escape pain. We use God activity to avoid difficult areas in our life that God wants to change. We, we get busy about, about the business of the kingdom. We get busy about doing the work and doing the things that we feel like God's called us to do because it distracts us from maybe the pain or the issues or the instabilities that lie within. How do you know that this might be happening in your life? Well, here's some symptoms you can maybe use to recognize this in your own life. You do things in God's name that he never asked you to do. We say, well, God told me to do this, or God, God spoke to me to do this. Well, did he really, or did it just seem like a good idea for you? right? And so God wants us to be complete in him. He wants us to be complete in him. And part of our completeness, part of our wholeness is recognizing what God asks us to do and maybe what we want to do of our own wishful thinking, our own ideas, or things that we think might be good. Recognize there's a difference between good activity and God activity. Demonstrate Christian behavior so that people think well of you. You act good, you put on the Christian facade, but on the inside, you're broken, you're hurting, you're feeling defeated, you're depressed, you're anxious. On the outside, you look okay, and maybe you even call it faith, but what it really is is putting on the mask so that nobody really knows what's happening on the inside. There's nobody that you really open up to and tell them about what you're facing because you're afraid of what lies in within. So you stay active, you stay busy, you lead a small group, you go do all the good God things, but never really face what God wants to do on the inside of you. Perhaps another symptom for you is focusing on certain biblical truths and avoiding others that bring up what you want to avoid. I'm good with redemption, Jesus, but let's avoid about the gossiping. Right? Things that challenge us, that convict us or challenge us. Let's avoid those scriptures. Let's tear out those Bible pages and only stick with the things that I'm comfortable with. Or maybe you make continual pronouncements like the Lord told me I should do this or the Lord told me to tell you this. You just constantly, that's the theme. God told me to tell you. God told me to do. God told me. And you use God's name to justify what you're doing, the busyness that you're doing to avoid what God's actually trying to do in your life in the moment. It doesn't mean that God doesn't speak to us, and it doesn't mean that God doesn't challenge us to do things with others and speak to others, but there's a tendency when you're running from God to always use God's name to justify what you're doing. Hmm. Maybe you use the Bible to justify your sinful behavior or the sinful behavior of your family or others, or hide behind God talk Deflecting the spotlight from yourself. If someone asks you how you're doing, oh, let me tell you about what God's doing in my small group. Okay, let me tell you about what God's doing. Have you ever met any of those? Maybe you've done it yourself. Let me tell you what God said or what God did or your greatest revelation or this, that, or the other thing just to distract from talking about yourself. Maybe the challenges that you're facing. Number two. So using God to run from God. Number two, ignoring hard emotions. I said it already, but I grew up in a generation that said, we don't talk about our emotions. We 
actually should ignore our emotions. Let's not, they're not godly. They're of the devil. Let's not talk about those things. We don't want to talk about our problems. Uh, I was taught that from a young age. You don't, we don't talk about our problems. We don't talk about what's going on. And you know, in ministry, I, can I just be real this morning? Is that okay? Uh, if for those of you who didn't say yes, forget you. I don't, it doesn't matter. I'm going <laughs> to, you're going to learn to be real. That's okay. You know, in ministry, you know, it doesn't work real well to, to have the idea that you can't talk about your problems because you're faced with problems every day. That's part of dealing, that's part of ministry, is you help people walk through their problems. And if you don't learn to talk about the problems, you learn to take on the problems. And I, I, so I, I learned this. I see this happen in ministry a lot with pastors, and I, I learned this pattern of behavior. As you start taking on people's problems, you take on their cares and their worries and their fears and their family drama and all their things, and before you know it, you're weighted down with all the problems. you got your problems, their problems, and everybody's problems, carrying them around on your back. And then you don't understand why you have no energy, why you're tired all the time, why you're anxious, you're fearful, you don't want to to see the people in church anymore. Come on now. And all it is, you're not learning. The very simple truth is that you have to face the hard things. You have to look at the hard emotions. You have to talk about them. You can't ignore them. God has emotions. Did you know that? You were created in the image of God, and God has emotions. Emotions are not bad. It's what you decide to do with them that may be bad or good. Right? Many believe that emotions like anger, sadness, and fear are sinful and should be avoided. If they are felt, then something is spiritually wrong. We develop beliefs that anger is dangerous and unloving. Sadness is a lack of faith. Depression means we are outside the will of God. Fear or doubt means we are in sin. So what do we do? <laughs> Here's what we do. We inflate ourselves with false confidence to make those feelings go away. We pray, we quote the Bible, we fast, anything to keep ourselves overwhelmed from being overwhelmed with those feelings. So we, we, we have these things going on on the inside of us. And then what do we do? Let me fast. I need to fast. I need a 21-day fast. I am in sin because I'm doubting. And I need a 21-day fast. And at the end of the 21-day fast, we're tired, cranky, grumpy, and still <laughs> doubting, still fearful, and don't understand what's wrong with us. You're laughing because you've been there. You know it's true. You've done the Daniel fast, and you can't figure out why you're not getting breakthrough. Well, start with facing your emotions. Start at the beginning. Face the hard things and say, God, I need to be complete in you. I need this area. Yes, I'm doubting. Yes, I'm angry. Just agree with the fact that they're even there. Recognize them. We were, uh, by the way, I, rec I recommend counseling. I don't, I don't. I, you know, I'm not one of those pastors who's going to say no counseling, no thing. I recommend it. I think everybody needs a counselor at some point in their life. Some multiple, probably multiple times in their life. And we were, we were, in, a, we were in a counseling session, and um, I was sitting there, and Heather said something that just made me mad. <laughs> anybody ever been there? Your spouse make you mad? 
I told Heather I was going to get personal this morning, so, so I gave her the heads up. Any of your spouse ever said anything that made you mad? Well, she said something in the session that just made me mad. I thought, why would she say that? That is so not true. It was her perspective, but I'm like, that is, in my perspective, it wasn't true. I'm like, in her perspective, it was, in mine, it wasn't. And I'm like, why would she say that? That was so, and the counselor, and immediately my face must have contorted or something. Because, you know, there's always, every emotion has a physiological response. So, so my physiology was probably indicating emotionally there was something happening. There was a bunch of endorphins and things being released in my brain. I could tell you all the neuroscience of all these things because this is what I study and do professionally outside of pastoring. So there, there's a lot of truth to this. But anyway, so they probably saw all the things happening, right? And then uh, she said, so Zach... Um, I'm not her pastor, so she, you know, she didn't call me pastor. She says, Zach, she, you know, just clarifying. So she, so she says, Zach, she said, what's happening right now? And I didn't really want to talk about it. She said, are you flooded with emotion? <laughs> now, I had a choice in that moment. I could just lie through my teeth and say, no, I am happy we're good. I'm just, we're good. supposed to love this woman sitting next to me. I'm good. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Or I could acknowledge in the moment, I'm angry. And yes, I, I'm feeling anger. You can ignore those, those emotions or you can face them and just recognize. It doesn't mean that I was going to fly off the handle and act out in rage because I was angry. But I just needed to recognize in the moment, I'm angry. And it's happening right now in my body. My body feels the anger. Right? Just like your body feels the joy or the peace or any other emotion, your body feels the anger, right? And so I just needed to recognize it and say, okay, I have a choice right now. I can be complete in Christ or I can stay angry. I can be, this situation can be complete in Christ or I can stay angry and it's going to continue on for the next week. Right? You have a choice in your marriage, in your workplace, in your home, wherever it is. Are you going to continue to stay angry or upset or frustrated or whatever those things are? Or are you going to face it? Because if you don't face it, it's going to carry around in some shape or form. It's going to show up. In marriage counseling, we say you bring out all the ammo of your past. You store up the, the ammo over the years of all the things that were said or done or things that happened, didn't say, didn't do, and they get stored up in the stockpile of your ammo. And when the right moment comes, you pull out all the ammo and you got your machine gun ready to fire. Right? It's because we don't face the hard things. And so if you determine to face the hard things in the moment, instead of running from them, face them. You know, people often, you know, say that Heather and I, one of our ministry and our ministry teams, one of the things that we do is we face the hard things up front. We don't sweep them under the rug. We face the hard emotions right up front because we've learned through life that, that healing comes when you face the hard emotions. It's not comfortable. It's not easy, but it's making you complete in Christ when you recognize the hard emotions and you face them and you deal with them in the moment. Amen. Good preaching, pastor. Maybe you've been told things like I've been told, feelings are of the devil. Or we walk by faith, not by feelings. Baloney. 
The reason you're not victorious in your life is because you're absolutely walking by your feelings. You're not walking by faith, and that's why that area, a particular area of your life, always seems to be circling and cycling, and you feel like you're the rat on the wheel constantly spinning. It's because you're living by your feelings, not by faith. Feelings should not be trusted. You know, all of those things cause us to become disconnected with how we feel. But to feel is human. To feel is how we were created by God. I already said it, but God has emotions. Here's what the Bible says about it. Zephaniah 3.17 says, God will exalt over you with joy. Did you hear that? He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Psalm 78.40, they grieved him in the desert. They grieved God in the desert. Exodus 25, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. One of the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before me. And he says, I'm a jealous God. Judges 2.18, the Lord was moved to pity for their groanings. Micah 7.18 says, you do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. God has emotions. So the degree that you cannot express your emotions, you will remain impaired in your ability to show love to God, others, and yourselves. So part of of learning to love yourself, learning to love God, and learning to love others, sound familiar? Greatest commandments? In order to do that, you have to be okay with your emotions. I'll say that again, because nobody said amen. And it's really true. It's so important. Jesus said, they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. You love yourself. Love others. Right? Is that what he said? That's what he said. So if you can't love yourself because of difficult emotions and challenges in your life, it's, you're going to have a really hard time loving God, and you're going to have a really time, hard time loving others. If you can't love God, right, it's a, it's a cycle. If you can't... If you can't love God how he deserves to be loved, then you're not going to be able to love others or love yourself. It all plays together and integrates together. So learning to deal with those hard things is so important. Number three, symptom number three of signs you might not be complete in Christ is that you minimize who you were created to be. Well, my wife is sort of amening me. <laughs> I guess from the response of the crowd, that might, be, that might be speaking to some. You minimize who you were created to be. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me daily. We often interpret that, that we have to crucify areas of our life, which is true. The sinful parts of our life need to die. Right? The sinful old order way of doing things needs to die. The immediate impact of Adam and Eve's sin was shame, avoidance, guilt, fear, lying, blaming, detachment, judgmentalism. They're all there. Go back to the garden. These are the things that we have to die to, as well as obvious sins like murder, stealing, those kind of you know. We all know we need to die to those. It's often the detachment that issues in our lives that we have to also die to and we don't want to face that. 
God does not call us to minimize or to die to who he created us to be. Often we think that we're not valuable enough or we, God could never use us. God could never fulfill his purpose or his calling on our life. And so what we begin to do is we minimize who God's created us to be and we start killing off, crucifying off the true person that God's made us to be, the unique individualism, the, the, the personality, the, uh, the giftings and the talents. And instead of being bold and courageous and who God's made us to be, we shy back and shy away and say that could never be, that's not possible. Or we, we adapt to how people, we adapt to what we think people perceive of us. I'll, I'll give you, a, Heather and I have this conversation often, but, you know, and I can use her as an example because she's bold and courageous in this, and I don't think she would mind me saying this, but there's often, you know, a disconnect with women in ministry. There's, people don't understand the importance of women in ministry, and God, that God calls women to ministry. Amen. God calls them to ministry. Amen. And so there's, there's often, you know, she runs into it a lot where, you know, she's, she's the woman and, and there's a lot of men that get challenged by women in ministry. And she, and she, <laughs> she said all the time. She deals with that. She faces that head on. And, and if she allowed the perceptions of others to influence how she showed up, she would she would back up into the into the background and be the quiet, silent woman in the background. Now she wouldn't do that, and y'all are laughing because you know that that's not true. But that's a reality, and for you, you're you're laughing, but for you that might be a reality that there's an area of your life that you've backed up into the background, into the shadows on because you're afraid of being who God's called you to be. You know, I, when I first was called into ministry I was at a young age, you know, this might be a shock to you, I was laughed at and judged and told I should never pursue ministry. I was never supported. I was never, it was never an uh, endeavor that was supported or encouraged. And so it would have been very easy for me to back up into the shadows and say I would need to get a, quote, real job because ministry just wouldn't be successful. And there's been times in my life where I've faced hard situations and there have been things said, things that have happened, because ministry's hard and life is hard and things that have happened. And my natural tendency, that, that lie of you'll not be good enough, that, that you, you, you need a real job, this isn't a real job, you need a real job, you can't fulfill this, has, has shown its ugly head. And I could allow that thing to just push me back into the shadows and say, well, I can't fulfill what God's called me to do. I'm just a loser. I'm no good at this. I'm not a good pastor. I'm not a good shepherd. I just need to get a real job and just disappear. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so we allow those lies, we allow those issues to keep us from fulfilling what God's called us to do. The thing that needs to die, when Jesus said, you need to take up your cross and follow me, the thing that needs to die is the lie, not who he's created you to be. God never asked us to annihilate the self he created us to be. God never asked us to annihilate the self he created us to be. God intends that our deeper, truer selves blossom and follow him fully. 
That's what he was after. So what are some signs you might be minimizing who you were created to be? Well, let me help you. Number one, feeling that you don't matter or are valued. That your life doesn't matter or you're not valued. Number two, avoiding or disregarding your gifts, your talents, and your abilities. You know that God's giving you giving you a gift or a talent or ability instead of running to it, stewarding that gift, using the gift for his glory, you run away from it, you leave it on the shelf. Or if someone asks you to engage in that area, you're like, eh, I'm not so sure. Now listen, I feel like right now, you know, just the Holy Spirit just prompted me. There's someone in the room, you know, you got to love when you're just teaching about healing and wholeness and God says, yep, there's someone here. That, so here's that. So you're going to get, there's someone here. <laughs> That it, you relate to this because you have a gift, you have a talent, something that God's given to you, and you had a negative experience. You had a bad experience. Someone abused or misused that talent for their own benefit, for their own glory, and you got stuck right in the middle of that situation. And you, you've been a, 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 the recipient of some negative influence and talk and lies and things because someone wanted to take that gift, that talent, that ability, and manipulate it for their own good. Can I tell you, that's, number one, that's not who God is. That's not who God is. He's not, he doesn't give us gifts and talents and abilities to manipulate us. Am I preaching to somebody? He's not giving you something to manipulate you. There are people in life who will take advantage of you, manipulate you, use you. But we have to face those things. That's part of emotional health and well-being and wholeness and pressing into God, being complete in Christ, is saying, this is what happened in life. This is what happened with this person. This is what's going on. And allow God to heal that. Allow that thing to become a testimony instead of a, a stop or a roadblock to what God's trying to do in your life. Determined to say, I'm going to be whole in Christ in this area, and this isn't going to stop me. It's not going to hinder me. It's going to be the thing that propels me forward. It's going to be the thing that drives me forward into God. Another sign is that thinking you are incapable or unable to fulfill your purpose. I know that God's given me the, this purpose, this identity, this plan but I'm not able to fulfill it because I'm not skilled enough. I don't know enough. I don't have enough. Or people don't like me. Any of those things keeping you, you're incapable, keeping you from fulfilling your purpose. Those are all things that can be crucified on the cross. Those are the old order. Another sign that you're minimizing who God created you to be is believing you're not good enough, not able. You're unable. Another symptom or sign that we need to be complete in Christ, number four, is denying the impact of the past or the present. You know, I grew up and we would quote scriptures like, I forget what lies behind and I press on to take hold. So if it happened, you got to forget it, let it go. And then what we do as Christians is we stockpile a whole bunch of things that we really haven't forgot. What we've done is we've compartmentalized them or stockpiled them away in the Tupperware bowl. And then when life gets hard, they all come out to haunt us. Don't shout me down when I'm telling you the truth. So you really haven't forgotten them. They're just waiting for the appropriate time to come out and torment you. 
The old is gone. The new has come. We, we, we leave it. We let it go. But what Christ wants us to do is to face those things head on. If you're going to forget them, you know, there's, there's a lot of debate in the science and things like that. Can you actually forget the hard things that you face? Can you actually forget trauma? Can you forget this? Can you forget that? Why would, and then, you know, in the Christian world, we have to reconcile, well, why would God say forget if the, if the science says that God, so here's one of those things that God does supernaturally that science can't do. God can actually make you forget. He can actually make those things disappear as if they never even happened. Make you forget those things. That's a work of God. That's supernatural. But in order for that to happen, is you have to bring it to him. You can't ignore it. You have to face it and say, God, here it is. Here's the thing that's happened. Make me forget. I don't want to remember this. I don't want to bring this up. I don't want to deal with this anymore. I don't want it haunting me and tormenting me anymore. And God can blot it out. But that's the work of God. Our work is to say, God, here it is. Because it's going to impact my life. When we come to Christ and are born again, the old order or way of doing things is gone. It does not mean that our past is gone or the effects of the past is gone. It means that how our carnal nature deals with life is done away with. And we now have a new way of living in Christ. The new way of living does not deny the past, but faces it and sees restoration and healing happening. So when you, when you see Christ, when you're living in Christ, He heals, He restores. And instead of seeing the problem, seeing yourself staying stuck, you see Jesus as your healer. You see Him as the restorer. You see things being made new in Him. Sanctification, hear this, sanctification requires that you face your past in order to break free from unhealthy and destructive patterns that prevent you from loving God, others, and yourself is the way God designed. Sanctification is this ongoing journey of being changed and transformed into the image of God. It's, it's step by step, step by step. But in order to, for that to happen, sanctification requires that you face those hard things. Y'all hearing me this morning? Number five, compartmentalizing secular and sacred. Another sign that you might be needing wholeness in Christ is that you compartmentalize, let's say it like this, church, God, and every other thing is compartmentalized. We have an uncanny ability to compartmentalize our lives and live secular lives and sacred lives. We try to regulate our Christian activities around church and do not bring spiritual disciplines into the way we think and behave with money, marriage, relationships, discipline of children, recreation, careers, vacations. You all hear me? We have our church on Sunday and then Monday through Saturday is everything else. Right? We go to church on Sunday, we live, we live compartmentalized lives. And heaven forbid we touch, as a pastor, I preach or touch or say anything that affects your Monday through Saturday. Because then you get mad at me. Right? 
Now, some of you have all, I hear it, because, you know, the brains. You know, it's like in, when you get into a church and you're preaching, it's like all the brain waves floating through the air all make their way to the pulpit. And there's, like, there's this invisible speaker up here that just tells me all the things that are happening. And, and so they've, I felt that. They just all made their way right on up here. And I heard, I heard a few things. I won't repeat them. Some of them may have been vulgar, so I won't repeat them because you didn't want me to touch your, your life on Monday through Saturday. But that's not the life that being complete in Christ is, is our whole life. It's complete. It's whole. It's filled. Every area, not just part of it, right? You can't say, I love Jesus on Sunday, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep part of my schedule to myself. God, you can't touch this part of my schedule. Or you can't touch how I parent. Or you can't touch how I have relationships. Or you can't touch what I do or what I drink or how I eat or what. Come on now. I had, um, I'll, just, I'll just share a story, you know. Y'all, I'm going to offend people. So I'm going to tell you now. I'm going to offend you. And that's okay. I know I'm going to offend you. And I, I've, I'm working on emotional health and well-being. So, so it doesn't change my purpose or my identity if you get offended. But I would invite you. I'm going to talk about it in a moment. I'm going to invite you to deal with your offense. Because I'm going to talk about offense in a moment. But anyway, we, uh, we had a, someone one time, you know, we have a standard in our church that, you know, there are, especially in, in particular roles, you know, we believe in, in abstinence from drinking, you know, that, that, that you don't need alcohol. Like there's, you know, there's way too many doors that open up. Are you going to hell if you have a drink? You know, all those great debates. But, but where we set it for leadership, leaders don't drink. That's the bar we set. And, and we preach accountability on that, and we believe that. Well, we had a leader one time that was, was leading teenagers, not youth, not our youth ministry, but leading a group of teenagers. And they had to fill out the leadership form. If you've ever seen our leadership form, you know on there it asks, will you abstain from alcohol or any questionable sinful behavior listed in and gives the scripture reference of things that you should abstain from. By the way, that's not just a form to fill out. That's a check and balance for you to check yourself and say, am I living compartmentalized? Am I living a sacred and, and secular, you know, two world? That's all it is. Anyway, so anyway, so they, you know, they go to fill out the form and they met with us and said, I can't fill the form out. Well, why not? Well, I really want to lead this. And they were already leading this particular group. We want to continue leading this group. But I like I like to go home during the week. I like to go home and drink my whiskey. I like to sit down and drink a glass of whiskey and all the things. And that's that's how I relax. And so we said, well, good news is that there's a great, another way to relax. You don't have to put the alcohol in to relax. You can turn on the worship music. You can read your Bible. There's a lot of other ways to deal with relaxation than putting alcohol into your body and, and, and leading for an opportunity to cause others to sin or others to cause offense or any other things because of your drinking. And they said, well, I can't do that. And so, you know, they, we said, well, if you can't commit to that, then we'll invite you to not continue leading your ministry. I mean, it's your choice. You can, you can drink or you can lead. It's your choice. You can't do both. You can't, lead the, you can't do the, the same. So you, you make the decision. They made the decision to step out. 
and uh, you know all the things. Well, you know, it's years go by after that. You just kind of watch what's happening in those people's lives. You know, where where do they end up as a result of their what decision they embraced in that moment? You know, one moment changes everything, friend. One one decision, one moment changes, and it, it's funny to watch. Not really funny, but it's interesting to watch the progression of people. You know, I've seen that time and time again where they choose to do that over this. What happens as a result of that? You know, the, I'm like, you could watch Facebook and know, well, that wasn't just a drink of whiskey a night. You all know what I'm talking about. That wasn't just a, that wasn't a one-time drink. That was an ongoing issue in their life. That was a, and it wasn't just that. There was pornography and all sorts of things happening. The, the, the curtain just got ripped back on in that one moment. You know, so it's easy. We try to compartmentalize. All I'm saying is we try to compartmentalize things, right? We, we put things in this box. God, don't touch. Pastor Zach, don't touch my whiskey. Well, I'm going to touch it. <laughs> we had, I'll never forget. I'll tell, I can tell these stories. They're 10 years later. So, um. <laughs> You don't even know who, this church doesn't even know who these people are. So, we, when we first got here, I'm talking like the first week we moved here. Literally, like first week, we, days we had been in town on the ground. And we, uh, somebody had invited us to go out to the Akron Civic, to whatever Christian concert show it was. And we're sitting there, and, and Heather and I are sitting next to each other. Mike Sloan was sitting next to us or in front of us, I don't really recall, he was close by, and um, we were, the, the topic of one particular person came up, they, you know, somebody said their name, and Mike said, oh, I think they're at the bar singing tonight, and I thought, I looked at Heather, and I said, they're what? <laughs> because I knew on Sunday morning, they'd be on our platform helping lead worship. Yeah, 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 y'all heard that, right? I said, say What? Oh, yeah, they, they sing in the bar. They, that's their job. They sing in the bars. And, then, and I said, they come to church on Sunday morning and lead me in worship? It was not Pastor Grace, no. <laughs> it was not Pastor Grace. Thank you for that clarity. So... I said, Pastor Grace, this is week one, Pastor Grace. We're going to have a conversation with Sister So-and-so. Because Sister So-and-so ain't getting up on Sunday singing, I love you, Lord, after she'd been in the bar drinking who knows what, leading everybody in their whatevers. Listen, I'm not asking you to be perfect. God doesn't ask you to be perfect. But you can't live compartmentalized life, right? So anyway... So we had the conversation. We said, look, you, you make the decision. We're not even, we realize this is your job. This is your career. We're not even asking you to change it today. We just need you to commit. Just that you're going to make a change. Like this, this can't continue. You just need to make a change. Will you commit to make a change? We'll walk with you through it over the next couple of months. But this has got to change. You know what they said? I didn't see him on the platform anymore. That's what they said didn't see them on the building anymore. They left because they wanted to hold on. I don't even know where that person is anymore. So there's, there's a reality here, right, that we have to deal with. Statistics speak for themselves. Divorce, 
is as often in church members as it is in non-church members. Church members beat their wives as often as non-church members. The giving patterns of church people indicate they are as almost as materialistic as non-church members. White evangelicals are the most likely people to object to neighbors of another race. Cohabitation is increasingly more acceptable prior to marriage among young church members. According to Gallup polls and sociologists, one of the greatest scandals of our day is that evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and immoral as the world in general. Compartmentalized. Number six. Doing for God instead of being with God. In other words, your identity is in what you do, not who you are. Can I encourage you today that your identity in Christ is who you are? It's not what you do for God. It's not how many serve teams you're on, how many small groups you lead. It's not what you do for God up on this platform or anywhere else in this building or anywhere else in the world. It's about who you are with him. And out of the abundance of who you are with Christ should flow all the things that you do. Work for God that is not nourished by a deep interior life with God will eventually be contaminated by things like pride, power, needing approval from others, and buying into the idea that you just cannot fail. Doing for God in a way that is proportionate to our being with God is the only way to a pure heart in seeing God. We have to, we, this is why we say saturate, worship. You have to live a life in his presence, a life behind the veil. That's where this comes in, is when you're spending time with God, when you're worshiping him, when you're praying, when you're in his word, then all of who you are begins to flourish. You identify who you are in God because you spend time with him. You recognize him. And then it's no longer about what you do. It's about who you are with him. Some of the signs that you're doing for God instead of being with God are one, believing that spiritual growth comes primarily from spiritual activities. My growth comes because I do X, Y, Z. Another sign is that thinking that it's, it's all up to you. If you don't do it, nobody else will. If you don't reach the lost, nobody else is. If you don't preach, you, nobody else will. If you don't fill in the gap, nobody else will. It's all up to you. It's quiet in here. Another sign of this is believing God can't move unless you pray. <laughs> I love that one. It resonates in so many ways, but I love that one. Well, we'll pray about it. And then, you know, the, the, and I'm not saying don't pray. You need to pray. We are called to pray. We are called to be people of prayer. We're called to present all of our requests to God. We're called to do those things. But to have the idea that God can't act or move or answer unless you pray and you pray, that's a problem. Right? that you are responsible for sharing Christ around you at all times or people are going to go to hell. Now, listen, I, I appreciate sharing, sharing Christ with you. Don't get mad at me. 
I appreciate that. But uh, if you have the idea that if that drives you, that I have to do this or everyone's going to hell around me and I failed somehow, then people's salvations and eternity is dependent upon you and not the sovereignty of God. Or things will fall apart if you don't preserve and hold, persevere. Sorry, things will fall apart and persevere if you don't if you don't do your part. You've got to hold it all together. If you don't persevere, if you don't keep your life together, everything's going to fall apart. <laughs> it's quiet in here. I feel like the Lord might be speaking. Number seven, another sign. I'll move on. I feel like we've stepped on enough toes. We'll move on. Number seven, over-spiritualizing or avoiding conflict. <laughs> How you might know if you're not complete in Christ is over-spiritualizing or avoiding conflict. Nobody likes conflict, but it is everywhere. One of the most destructive myths in the Christian community is the belief that smoothing over disagreements or sweeping things under the rug is what it means to follow Jesus. And what, what, <laughs> and what, and what we do is we, treat, we see conflict and it's like this big radioactive waste bin. It's got a big radioactive sign. Avoid at all costs. It's radioactive. Right? That's not how we're called to respond to conflict. Actually, Jesus' life demonstrates that healthy Christians do not avoid conflict. We face it. Everywhere Jesus went, there was conflict. You ever thought about that? Everywhere he went, there was conflict. Whether it was his disciples didn't agree with what he was doing or how he was doing it. You had the religious leaders who hated him and wanted him as dead. I mean, his very, his hometown, his very first sermon in his hometown, they tried to throw him off the cliff. I mean, the conflict followed the man everywhere he went. But he didn't shy away from it. He faced it. He knew what he was called to do. He knew who he was in his father. And that nothing changed that. He was willing to face the conflict. He was willing to face the hard things. Out of a desire to bring true peace, Jesus disrupted the false peace all around him. He refused to spiritualize conflict avoidance. We'll say things like, well, it'll just be better if we don't talk about it. When we, again, I'll, I'm telling stories, but, you know, I'll never forget the day that... Um, someone came in to my office or, you know, or here, it was here at the church or somewhere in my office or here. And they said, can you dedicate my child? And the child was like eight. I think she was like eight years old at this point. We're like, well, sure. You know, and they had been in the church. And I thought, well, sure. You know, we'll dedicate. Of course we'll dedicate your child. And she said, well, I wasn't sure that you would dedicate my child because when I asked the previous pastor, they said that they would they refused to dedicate my child because the child was born out of wedlock. And so the only way they would dedicate the child was to take me in the back office and have a board member or two be with me. And then they dedicate the child in the back office. Talk about avoiding conflict. 
We don't want to make people mad in church because we dedicate a child that's been born out of wedlock. This mama wanted her baby to be raised in church, her child to be raised in church. She wanted the child to be encouraged and taught godly principles. Why, why couldn't we dedicate that child to the Lord? This is a gift of God. That, that baby's not ours anyway, whether it's born out of wedlock or not. That baby's not my baby. That baby's not her baby. That baby's God's baby. And if mama says, I want to commit that child to the Lord, then guess what we're going to do? We're going to commit that child to the Lord. But out of fear, let's not touch that. Let's not, we don't want to go there. We don't want to talk about the hard things. But we have to talk about the hard things. We have to talk about, if someone offends you, you can't just forget it and pretend it, it doesn't exist. Wow, it got quiet in here. Well, in order to keep the peace, I'm not going to say anything. Oh, you're not keeping the peace. You're perpetuating peace. You're perpetuating the inevitable peace. You're not keeping peace. That offense still lingers in your heart because you haven't dealt with it. Right? And so every time you see that person or any time, it's like what we were talking about earlier in marriage. You pull out the ammo. Right? It's still there. It still resides there. Signs that you might not be facing conflict, that you might be avoiding it or over-spiritualizing it. One, you say one thing to people's faces and something different behind their backs. So that's a great indicator that you're avoiding conflict, right? Like, I'm going to tell you I love you, and it's all good, and everything's hunky-dory, and I, you know, we're going to worship together, we're going to sing together, we're going to do all the things together. But when I get out those doors, I am going to talk about you. Did you see what they did? Did you hear what they did? They can't sing worth a lick. Olivia, man, they just need to get her off the stage. I can't believe her. Pastor Grace, you know, right? I'm, and y'all know I'm joking. But that's what, that's what happens. Right? I'll invite you to deal with your offense. So Jesus, Jesus gave us Right? Jesus gave us protocol for this. He said, if you come into worship and your brother has offended you, don't even worship. Did you hear what I said? Jesus said, if you come into church, if you come into a service, you come into a meeting, and you have offense with someone, don't even, don't even worship. Leave your gift at the altar. Leave whatever, whatever you came in with to worship. Just leave it and go make it right. Then come worship. That's how serious Jesus is about offense. That's a pretty big deal. He even went a little bit further. He said, if you don't forgive, my father won't forgive you. So Jesus takes forgiveness pretty serious. The reason for that is because one root, one small root of unforgiveness, the simplest thing can spring up, the Bible says, into a root system that offends many. One small thing in your life can become like gangrene and spread throughout the church, throughout the body, and offend many. So God takes it very serious. Number two, you make promises with no intention of keeping them. Blame others, number three. Number four, you're overly sarcastic. Instead of, instead of dealing with offense, you just are sarcastic about it. It's how you cope. Number, number five, tell half-truths to not hurt others. Well, I will tell you a portion of this so that I don't hurt you. I'm only going to give you half of it. But what I really want to say is, 
Say yes when you mean no. Share with an outside person to ease your anxiety. Let me vent to you. You ain't venting. Let me tell you about venting. Let me just pause there. If you're talking to someone outside the situation and they can't help that situation, you're gossiping. Did you hear? Man, it's, I feel the Holy Ghost in this. I need to do a little Pentecostal jig. I feel it. If, you, if you're talking to somebody outside the situation who can't do anything about the situation, then you're gossiping. Venting, right, is not gossiping. But if you have, if you have an offense, go to the person. Jesus gives us, it's so awesome. You know, you would think that Jesus knew this was going to happen. He knew that, that we were going to be offended by each other. He knew that church people were going to get ruffled by each other. I mean, goodness, you can't even get into the past the first couple of chapters of Acts, the New Testament church, without running into conflict. I mean, by Acts, Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, by Acts 6, they're, they're wanting to fight each other. And the problem was that the widows weren't getting food in the grocery in the grocery line or the potluck line they were upset because they were running out of food at the potluck and that caused church division that's where deacons came from is because the potluck went awry so they had to have deacons handle potlucks so that the apostles could preach the gospel that's the prosser translation of acts 6 but that's general idea It's a, y'all laughing because you know it's a real thing. And what's really dangerous about potlucks, and we've all done it, is you stand there looking at the food and you're like, who made that? <laughs> Never mind, I'll stop. <laughs> and, then, and then you go... And then you go, you go home, and you have a whole conversation at the table or in the living room. Man, I don't know what that thing was that they made. It was supposed to be a jello mold, but it looked like penicillin on a stick. I mean, that was bad. I don't know what they made. Y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. Let me continue on with the symptoms here, or the signs of avoiding conflict. How about sending veiled text messages or emails or social media posts? <laughs> so you put your frustrations out there, but you don't really want to call the problem out. You know, I had this happen just a few weeks ago. Somebody was, not, not even that long ago, somebody in our church was posting, thank God they're not here anymore. They, yeah, I said it. They were posting, they were posting on social media, veiled, veiled complaints about someone else in our church. We knew what was going on because pastors, but they were posting veiled complaints, complaining about someone in our church that had no, it was all lies, absolute lies absolute lies, but they were posting it on social media to gain a following, trying to stir up people, get, get people to follow after them. So we just sat back and said, Lord, you handle this. 
Lord, you just deal with this. We're not going to deal with this. You're going to deal with this. You know, God has a way of dealing with things. I love it. Not that, not that I don't have a problem dealing with it. We, 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 we did. We actually had a meeting. So anyway, enough of that. Sending veiled texts, emails, social posts. I, that, that frustrates me. Deal with the problem. Yeah, face it. Face it. And, you know, the, Jesus was, was great at this. He, he said, look, you go to the person that offended you. Matthew 18. Go to the person that offended you. If they don't hear you, if they don't receive you, then you take someone with you. You explain to them what's happening, and you take someone with you. You take someone that can speak wisdom to the situation. Bring them with you. And if they don't hear it and the problem continues in the church, then you bring it before the leadership of the church, and you deal with it at that level. We deal with, that's, that's, you know, you want to know how we handle church discipline? Matthew 18. That's how we deal with it. If you, please don't come to me and tell, tell me somebody's hurt your feelings or done something without having gone to that person first. Because if you, if you bring that to anyone on our team, anyone on our pastoral team, our core leadership team, you know what they're going to say? They're going to say, well, did you go talk to them? Did you have a conversation with them? Because that's the that is biblical principle number one when dealing with offense is you need to sit down and have a face to face conversation, not text message, not social media, not all the things. Have a face to face conversation. I felt offended when you said this because it hurt my feelings, because it made me feel insecure, it made me feel devalued. Whatever it is. And by the way, that person's, I, I could preach a whole message here on offense. I won't. But if that, that person did not make you feel the way that you felt. We have a tendency to blame our emotions and how we feel on someone else. You made me feel. You made me do. No, no. They didn't make you feel anyway. You felt how you felt. Take ownership of that. You felt how you felt. You felt. Their behavior may have contributed to it, but you felt how you felt because that's your emotion. You were created with emotions, and they're your emotions, not someone else's. Hallelujah. Good preaching, Pastor. <laughs> I'm going to get ugly letters this week. I feel it. <laughs> Just don't post veiled things on social media. I'll be telling a story about you in a couple weeks. Thank God they're gone. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> totally joking. <laughs> Got to bring humor into this somehow, you know? Number eight. I'm wrapping up if y'all want to know. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this up. Number eight. Avoiding brokenness, weakness, and failure. There's a pressure to present ourselves as strong and have it all together. We feel guilty for not measuring up, for not making the grade. We forget that, that not one of us, I'm going to emphasize that, we forget that not one of us is perfect and that we are all sinners. We forget that the Bible is full. I cannot emphasize this enough. The Bible is full of scandal. <laughs> it really is. Instead, we try to cover up our brokenness and our weakness, and it didn't really happen. We don't want to talk about it. And, and you know, can I just say, I'm going to pause, because I see these things on social media that say, oh, the church is the worst place. You, people will judge you in church and all these social media memes. The church is the worst place to open up. 
can I, can I, I want to, I feel angry when I see these posts. <laughs> so I get somebody did you wrong in church. We've all been done wrong in church. I've wanted to quit church. The problem is I'm the pastor. I can't. So we've, we've all been there. <laughs> we've all been there. But to say, well, I can't open up because somebody's going to judge. You're just perpetuating the lie in your own pain. You're going to continue to stay in your pain because you've chosen to believe this thing that you can't open up in church. When the reality is, I happen to know this church is a really great church to open up in. I happen to know there's a lot of people who are very loving and hold confidences in a safe space and are really good at, at just encouraging and walking alongside of and praying and all the things. Anyway, that's enough of that. So I just want to tell you that. Just, you know, anyway, I, I wanted to share my anger. Anyway, I'm being transparent. The Bible was full of scandal and issues and brokenness and weakness. But in church, we say things like, I am more than a conqueror. So let's not talk about our weakness. But Paul also said, I will boast in my weakness. Because in my weakness, he's made strong. Yes, I'm more than a conqueror, but he makes me that. His strength and his grace makes me that. David did not try to cover up his scandal. Instead, he used his power as king to ensure the details of his failure were recorded for all of history. He even wrote a song about his failure to be sung in Israel's worship services and to be published in the Psalms. Paul wrote about God not answering his prayers and about his thorn in the flesh. He thanked God for his brokenness and reminded us that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Moses was a murderer. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Peter rebuked God. Noah got drunk. Jonah was a racist. Jacob was a liar. John Mark uh, deserted Paul. Elijah burned out. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Thomas doubted. Moses had a temper. Timothy had ulcers. John wanted to call fire down from heaven. The early church argued and complained. It's full. It's all in the Bible. So we can't avoid it. We have to face it. Number nine, we live without limits, no boundaries. Number nine, we live without limits or no boundaries. Many of us have probably been taught that Christians are to constantly give and tend to the needs of others without limit. You are never supposed to say no to opportunities to help and never request help because that would be selfish. Guilt of never doing enough often leads to discouragement and discouragement to isolation from needy people or opportunities to serve. No boundaries. Jesus modeled for us a life with boundaries. Jesus modeled this for us. I, before, you can take that off the screen for a second. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump there here in a second. But I want to talk just real quickly. Remember Lazarus? Um, what was Jesus' response? Waited. Yeah, we're going to stay here a couple more days. Lazarus is dying. I'm in no hurry. Jesus, your best friend is dying. I know, it's okay. I'm in no hurry. If Jesus was married, his wife would have said, you're procrastinating. 
Jesus had boundaries. He wasn't in a hurry. He lived a life with limits so he could live a life without limits. Jesus had boundaries in his life so that he could live a supernatural life. And that's what the life that God's called you to live. He wants you to live a supernatural life. But you have to set boundaries. You can't, just, you, you can't always just go and go and go or give and give and give and expect that you're going to have more to give. You have to have boundaries. You have to live a life with limits so that you can live a life without limits. Jesus made time so that he would be away from the crowds with his father, resting. You know, Jesus walked everywhere he went. I mean, I know this is revolutionary. They didn't have, you know, Fords or, you know, Chevys or anything in the Bible days, I know. But everywhere he went, he walked. He never got in a hurry. We never see Jesus jumping on a horse to make it to Lazarus's funeral in time. No, he just walked everywhere he went. He, just, he went about his business everywhere he went. He walked. He kept, he was patient. He went where he went. How many times do we get hurried in our life? We get flustered. We get hurried. We, we carry on all the weight and the pressures of life. Right? Because we don't set boundaries. He never took on more than what his father wanted him to take on in the moment. Jesus didn't heal every person everywhere he went. He didn't touch or minister to every person everywhere he went. He didn't baptize people. His disciples did. It was intentional. But he was the baptizer in the Holy Spirit, not in the water. The disciples baptized in water. Right? There was boundaries. There was limits to everything that he did. We set, have to set healthy boundaries. Jesus modeled this for us as a human he did not heal every sick person in the places he visited. He did not raise every dead person. He did not feed all the hungry beggars or set up job centers for the poor of Jerusalem. He didn't do it, and we don't need to feel like we must. We must take appropriate care of ourselves. We don't have to live frantic, exhausted, overloaded, and hurried lives. There's a phrase one of our friends used a few years ago, live in the margin. You know, if you look at a book, you've got the, all the text, and we try to live in all the text when we ought to find what's the margin, the margin of the page, what's the little, what's our part, what's our part in all of this, and live there. We don't have to fill up the book. We don't have to write the story. We just have to fulfill what God's called us to do. Number 10. Save the best for last. <laughs> yeah, come on now. Number 10. Judging others' spiritual journey. Perhaps you believe it is your responsibility to correct people in error or in sin and to always counsel people who are mixed up spiritually. It's your job to make sure the pastor knows where he messed up. <laughs> or to make sure I remember what I forgot when I was preaching. <laughs> or what I should have said, or, or uh, what I said that was wrong. It's not biblical, you know, you make sure. Right? It's quiet in here, goodness. <laughs> 
Maybe you even feel guilty when you're supposed to fix someone else's problem and you have to admit you don't know the answer. You don't know what to say. You don't know how to fix it. Another great danger of this symptom is believing you are the spiritually superior or spiritually right one from this position you cannot receive from others. And if you will receive from others, it's got to be from people you consider to be the experts or the professionals because you couldn't receive from someone else. I, I love, you know, I love these people because uh, um, they stand out in a crowd. I'm thankful for the bright lights this morning that I can't see past the first row. But, <laughs> but the people in church that, that judge others usually sit there and they have the, they have the judger look on their face. They look... They don't, they don't like what the preacher's saying. They're judging others. Or, you know, maybe, maybe it's things like we, we take our differences and we make them into moral superiorities or virtue, our virtues. We judge people by, well, the music's too soft or the music's too loud or uh, I don't like their style of music or I don't like how they dress or what they're wearing or they're too casual, they're too formal, they're... Uh, oh, I don't like their taste of movies or what cars they buy and what cars they drive or where they. Come on now. And we turn those into judgments of other people because they look different than us. They look different than us. I don't care whether you wear a suit to church or you dress like I dress or you come in in a T-shirt and shorts. Thank God you're here. I don't, care, I don't care if you, I, I mean, I want you here at 10 a.m. I'd like to see you here at 9 a.m. in our serve team rally, and I'd like to see you here at 9.30 in pre-service prayer, and at 10 o'clock we have church. I want you on time, and you should be on time. But if you've had an extremely difficult morning, and your kids are screaming, and they're fighting, and, and everything, you, you're trying your possible best to be at church on time, but nothing you do can get them out the door on time, and you walk in at 10.30, thank God you're here. Obviously, there's places of stewardship if you're serving and there's things like that. That's another story, right? But if you're just, if you're coming into church, get here and let's worship together. We turn our differences into these superior ideas. Those artists and musicians are flaky. Right? We, we group people together and we, we create these judgmental ideas and groups of people. Those engineers, they're so cerebral. They're just, those, those cognitive people, they're just, they never receive. They're just cold as fish. Men are idiots, right? Women are overly sensitive. The rich are just self-indulgent and selfish. The poor are lazy. That person on the side of the street, they're just part of the problem. They're too lazy to get a job. Right? And we judge people. We make judgment calls and don't know their story, don't know what they're dealing with, don't know their life. We do the same thing inside of church. We say things like, well, those Presbyterians, they're just too structured. And those Pentecostals, they ain't got no structure. <laughs> Or those Catholics are all going to hell because they pray to Mary. Don't shout me down when I'm telling you the truth. And we say things like that. And we have no idea. 
They ain't going to hell because they pray to Mary. People are going, people are going to hell. Pentecostals are going to hell because they're too busy. Worshiping themselves and not Jesus. Right? We, we make these judgment calls and we put people in these boxes. By failing to let others be themselves before God and move at their own pace, we inevitably project our onto them our own discomfort with their choice to live differently than we do. Listen, I'm not excusing. There are biblical standards, right? I'm not, and I'm not excusing biblical standards. There's biblical truths, biblical standards. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about judging people just because of how they look, dress, think, right? I'm not excusing sin. Sin is sin. But listen, when you have this and you're emotional, you're where you are, you're complete in Christ. I, can, I, can I just say one little thing here? I know I'm going to be controversial. I, I, I've already been controversial today, so let me just continue. Um, I'm going to say something that's going to, it, it's going to shock you. It's, going to, it's, it's controversial. But we say things like, you know, because someone had an abortion, well, you know, we judge them. We put them in a box. Or because someone is living in a gay lifestyle, we put them in a box. Or we say things. And we say things, you know, we, we have no idea. We just judge. There's truth. Truth doesn't change. But when you love Jesus and you're complete in Christ, you don't have to prove your point with Scripture. Did you hear what I said? You don't have to try to prove your, well, the Bible says, and you're just a sin. You don't have to do that. When you love people, you know, it was interesting. I, I, I um, was having a conversation this week with a friend that is, I didn't, I, I had no idea this was happening. They were on their way to, um, to the West Bank. They were actually, actually they were staying in Jordan, but they were going to do counseling uh, for Palestinians that have gone through the war and the results of the war. And so they're, they're doing grief and trauma counseling on site. They're staying in Jordan and traveling back and forth to do counseling. And I said, I, I was curious, well, what started that? Like, how did you get, because that's, you know, that's a big, that's a dangerous, but also big. And they said, well, most people don't know this, but my husband is Palestinian. He's a Christian. He got born again. His family's not born again. He's born again, and he's Palestinian. And which opened up the door for me to say, oh, I would love to hear your perspective on what's happening. Because we, we hear from a Jewish perspective very frequently, and people say things like, I stand with Israel, you know, all the things, right? And, and so it opened up the door. I didn't start judgment. I didn't say, you know, oh, those, those Palestinians, are, they're just horrible people, or they support Hamas and all these things. But, but that's happening all around us, Right? But I don't have to do that. I don't have to prove a point or preach it. I just, I just want to have a conversation. I just said, I just want to talk about that. I'd love to hear what your perspective is on all of this. What, is, what are you seeing from this? As a Christian Palestinian family, what are you experiencing? What are you seeing? And they, they said this. I said, this was an interesting takeaway and that I left with the conversation. They said it's obviously a very big conversation that we can't have in 30 seconds on the phone. Love to have the conversation. But um, they said one of the biggest things that stand out to them is all of these Christians who post the things, I stand with Israel. Because the, the minute you post, I stand with Israel, it shuts the door on any witnessing opportunity with any other Arab nationality. Because all they see is 
Israel is, you know, the attack. You know, what's happening is kicked them out of the land, all their perspectives and things that go with that. And so they, they shut the door immediately. And, and for them as a Christian, they had to wrestle with the fact that, that Israel is not born again. Israel is not Jesus. And if I want to share Jesus with Palestinians, I just can't say I stand with Israel. I stand with Jesus, who loves Israel. I stand with Jesus, who loves Israel, and is going to deal with Israel, and they're his people. But we have to make that distinction. And I thought, wow. So it was an interesting conversation. Now, I'm sure there's more, and I'm not, I'm not getting into a theological thing on this. I'm just saying it opened the door. I'm giving an example. It opened the door because I didn't go into a judgment. I didn't immediately start judging her or her family because they were pa Palestinian. And in the world in which we live, that's happening all over. But I didn't start. I didn't lead with that. I didn't lead with, oh, I stand with Israel. I didn't lead with, oh, I just had Rabbi Eric come in and share about the Jewish. You know, I didn't lead with that. It was important to me. It's valuable to me. But I wanted, I, I love as Jesus said, I love people. And if they don't know that I love them, they're not going to hear any truth. So, anyway, so we don't want to judge. Why don't you stand to your feet? I realize what time it is, so I'm, I'm rapping. I'm not rapping. <laughs> rapping. You don't want to hear me rap. That'd be like Pastor Grace rapping. <laughs> Pastor Grace, can you rap? No. <laughs> Kathy Ripple is making notes. Pastor Grace cannot rap. I see her right there. She's making notes right there. This is a permanent note. Hallelujah. Somebody wanted me to rap. They were trying to turn on a station. They were trying to get their music going so I could start rapping. It ain't going to work. Hallelujah. So next week, we're going to talk about your identity in Christ. What does it mean to find your identity in Christ? What is your identity in Christ? Who are you in Christ? We're going to take a look at Jesus' baptism how he found his identity in the Father and how we find our identity in Christ. So I want to encourage you to be here next week. Bring somebody that you know that needs to find their wholeness, their completeness in Christ. Jesus, I thank you for every person that's here this morning. Lord, that you have a plan, you have a purpose for their life. Lord, you've designed them, created them uniquely from their DNA and all of the things about who they are how they show up in this life, their purpose, their passions. Lord, all of these things, Lord, you've created, you've designed. I pray, Lord, that you would awaken in every person this drive and desire, Lord, to be whole and complete in you, laying aside all of the things, laying aside all of the things that hinder us, facing them, recognizing them, and laying each of them aside, dealing with them, laying them aside, pushing away the old order of dealing with things. 
and running full on ahead. Lord, nothing, I just speak that over our church, nothing will hold us back. Nothing will keep us from running the race that you've called us to, Lord. Nothing will keep us from running full speed ahead. Lord, everything that would hold us back, we're laying it aside. We're finding our hold.